The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for episode 43 of The Murder of My Family. If you find that you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast so that the show can continue to grow and reach new listeners. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at murderofmyfam or by searching for The Murder of My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder my family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout outs to any new supporters. And thank you to all the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. Thank you. And now on with the show. Yolanda Bendix was a 25-year-old single mother who vanished in her hometown of Jamestown, New York in August 2004, 15 years before this episode is first airing. She was later found murdered. Yolanda's sizable family included ten other siblings and four young daughters of her own. By all accounts, Yolanda loved being a mother, and although things weren't always easy for her following a divorce, she managed to hold all of it together while working a job at the local family dollar store. On August 10th of that year, Yolanda headed home after work. She was never seen alive again. Her family was left to wonder what had happened to Yolanda. One thing that they all knew was that Yolanda would never abandon her kids, and they feared the worst early on. The next day, Yolanda's car was found. A month later in September, Yolanda's purse, wallet, and keys were recovered from a storm drain, which only seemed to confirm Yolanda's family's worst fears. Two years later, in September of 2006, Yolanda's body was found. The news was devastating to her family. This discovery led to questions that both police and Yolanda's family have been asking now for years. Who would want to kill the young single mother, and why? Police tried to construct a timeline for August 10, 2004, starting with when Yolanda left work. They knew that just after 8 p.m., she closed up the family dollar store along with a co-worker. As Yolanda walked towards her car that was parked in the lot, nothing was out of the ordinary, according to her co-worker, who lost sight of Yolanda as they went their separate ways. Just after the store closed, Yolanda's brother Frank, who was sitting Yolanda's daughters until she got home, decided to call his sister to see if she'd be home on time. 
Yolanda answered the phone. She told Frank that she just needed to stop at a local convenience store to redeem some wick checks for milk and bread, and that she would be home in about 15 minutes. But about 20 minutes later, just after 8.30 p.m., Yolanda still wasn't home, so Frank called her back. But this time, he didn't get an answer. Frank immediately got the sense that something was wrong, and quickly organized their family members, making them all aware that Yolanda should have been home and wasn't. Further phone calls by family members went unanswered, and they reached out to the Jamestown Police Department to report Yolanda missing. A search for Yolanda by family, friends, and concerned residents began the next day. The searchers were to look for any sign of Yolanda, who was described as being 5'7 and between 97 and 115 pounds, with hazel eyes and blonde hair. They also were to keep their eyes open for any sign of Yolanda's car, and ironically, it was one of Yolanda's sisters that discovered the car. It was parked out in the open at an Arby's restaurant, which was less than a quarter mile from Yolanda's workplace on Flavana Avenue. Nothing seemed out of place with the car, other than the doors being locked. That stood out to Yolanda's family, as she usually wasn't in the habit of locking her doors. Police also verified that Yolanda had not made it to the store she planned on stopping at that night on her way home. Days went by with no sign of Yolanda, and police began to look at people closest to her in an effort to clear them as suspects. Just a week and a half after she went missing, a Jamestown police officer was placed on administrative leave after it was determined that he had been involved in some way with Yolanda. Detectives questioned the officer to see if he may have been involved in Yolanda's disappearance, but he was never arrested. Police also closely looked at Yolanda's ex-husband, he was reportedly seen in a gas station not far from Yolanda's work on the day she went missing. But they quickly ruled him out as being a suspect in Yolanda's disappearance. Just shy of a month after she went missing, heavy rains helped reveal the first clues in the disappearance of Yolanda Bendix. The storm drain system flooded, bringing debris and items to the surface. Some of these items included a purse, wallet, and keys. A passerby found the items and immediately thought of Yolanda Bendix and reported the items to police. Investigators later determined that the items did indeed belong to Yolanda. They examined the items for potential clues and took them into evidence. DNA testing was also done on the items, and the results of those tests weren't shared by police. Despite clues in Yolanda's disappearance literally washing up for police, there was no sign of Yolanda herself. And they, along with Yolanda's family, would have to wait almost a year for the next break to come. Unfortunately, when it did come, it led to the outcome that most people feared. On September 10, 2006, 25 months to the day after Yolanda Bendix vanished, hunters found a body in a wooded section of Sinclairville, a town about 12 miles north of where Yolanda vanished from. Investigators quickly determined that the remains were Yolanda's. Police have chosen to hold Yolanda's cause of death close to the vest, but ruled the death to be a homicide. Examiners carefully and methodically searched Yolanda's remains for any trace of evidence that might point to Yolanda's killer. It was such a lengthy process that her remains were held in evidence for a year before being released to her family. But so far, the clues that police have to work with haven't led to an arrest. 
Although it wasn't the outcome Yolanda's family had hoped for, they were at least happy to have her remains so that they could give her a proper funeral, which they did. A memorial service was held in Buffalo, and Yolanda was finally laid to rest alongside family at Holy Cross Cemetery in Lackawanna, New York, on November 10, 2007. Yolanda's family was left to deal with the aftermath of her death, a death which splintered her daughter's lives, separating them from each other. Both of Yolanda's parents passed away not knowing who murdered their youngest daughter, and her siblings were patiently waiting, trying to wade through the rumors and their own suspicions, hoping that an arrest comes soon. Yolanda's sister Margaret joined me to discuss Yolanda's case and the twists and turns along the way in the 15 years since Yolanda went missing. She also discusses her family's efforts to keep the case in the public eye while they wait for an arrest. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Hey listeners, how much money do you make? If the answer is not enough, how does the opportunity to start making $40,000 a year sound? Even better, what if I told you you could double that to 80000 in just a few years? If that's something that interests you, then you should check out truck driving jobs. With the improved economy and high-demand commercial trucking industry, the need for truck drivers is definitely high. CDL.com makes it easy to get a commercial driving license and find the job that's right for your needs. Find opportunities in your town or over the road. On CDL.com, you can create a driver profile, access high-paying long-term and short-term trucking jobs, and apply to jobs in just minutes. It doesn't get any easier than CDL.com. With plenty of new jobs and schools around the country, get your trucking career started at CDL.com. Explore a truckload of jobs for the trucker in you. Once again, visit CDL.com. It could change your life. Hi, Margaret, and thanks for being with us to talk about Yolanda's case today. Yes, thank you for taking this time to let me talk about her case. No problem. And the the conversation that you and I are having is taking place in August. And I know that must be a tough time for you because it was 15 years ago this month that your sister Yolanda went missing only to be found later murdered. Not that every day isn't tough without a sister, I would imagine. Uh, but I can only imagine that this time of year is especially tough. Is that true? Yes, very. Tell us a little bit about Yolanda, if if you can, and, and what she was like. Yes, Yolanda was a wonderful mother, an awesome sister, wonderful daughter. Um, she was very outgoing, very happy, people pleaser. Yolanda would she was funny. She'd walk in the room, and you know, you, it just it was a joy to have her around. Never really you know, hurt anybody or have any complaints, you know, about her um, demeanor, attitude. She was just always a pleasant person all around and whatever she did and whoever she came in contact with. So it's not like she was very uh, positive and, and people were happy to be around her. Yes, very much so. And, and you come from a pretty big family, is that right? Yes. Um, one of 11, um, Yolanda being the baby. Okay, and how far apart were you in age, were you and Yolanda? Um, a year and 26 days, to be exact. <laughs> okay, so you you were 
We always joked. You were the closest, the youngest too, the closest uh, maybe in age uh, on the younger end. Yes. And and were you pretty close? Did you guys have like a, a certain bond because of that age? Uh, very. Age? Yeah. Yes, uh, we were very close. Tell us a little bit about that. Did you do the things sisters do, typically share secrets and uh, maybe that you wouldn't share with other people and stuff? Um, yes, there were secrets. There were things that she confided in me and I confided in her. Um, we trusted one another to, you know, not share those. Um, Yolanda, being that she, we were the, on the younger end, um, growing up, um, she was more like, um, I always looked after her. Um, so we had, it was almost like more than a sister bond. It was more, um, I just always looked after her and she'd always look after me, um, making sure that each other had the things we needed. Um, and that even carried on into our adulthood, just making sure that she had everything she needed. And if there was anything she needed, she can call upon me and vice versa. So, and it was whenever our friends, you know, if you saw Yolanda in town, you saw me with her or vice versa. So we we're always together doing everything together. Um, even mistakenly, um, you know, we were mistaken for twins <laughs> so many times growing up. See, it, it sounds like you were, you were very tight and, and beyond sisters, you were good friends. It sounds like. Yes, very much so. Yeah. If you would take us back to the time when Yolanda went missing, she was 25 years old at the time. She has four kids. She's working a job. Um, it, it sounds like she had her hands, uh, pretty full, but somehow she managed to, to keep it all together. Was she a single mom at the time? Yes. Um, single mom. Um, she did have her hands full, but I would say, um, I believe in her heart, it was full of joy. <laughs> um, she had a lot of support, um, from family, from, you know, rather my parents or siblings, when it came after, you know, when it came to the children, um, caring for them, babysitting, so, you know, whatever it was that she needed. Um, so she did have her hands full, but it wasn't to the point of where she couldn't handle it at any given time. So there's always someone there to help lend a hand to kick in. I guess it's one of the benefits of having such a, a big family. There's, there's a lot of hands to help reach in and, and help. Yes, and including neighbors, too. She had wonderful neighbors that, you know, even helped when needed. So she did have a really great support group for, um, you know, being a single mom and whatever she needed, you know, she was able to provide to her children. And August 10th, 2004 was just like any other night, nothing unusual. She closed up the store she worked at. She called your brother, who was watching the, the kids that night, uh, yeah. saying that she was making a quick stop before coming home, but she never showed up. Tell us a, a little bit about that night and how that went down. Um, so that evening, yes, um, she uh, closed work that night and actually had asked me to give her a call um, that evening. Um, there was something she wanted to tell me. I, to this day, don't know what that was that she needed to tell me. Um but she, um, yeah, I just, I wasn't aware until the following morning, um, that she never came home that night. So I wasn't aware throughout the night that she hadn't come home yet. But from what I under, 
stand today is that night, um, one of the persons of interest was actually um, across the street um, at the gas station when she, the same night that she went missing. Um, and this was a gas but, station located across the street from her work? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And he was there as, um, as a worker or as a uh, uh, somebody getting gas? Customer, yes, purchasing gas, yes. Okay. And so the next morning you find out she's missing. Um, your brother obviously has the kids, so right away he's wondering what's going on. Did he quickly think something was wrong or uh, how fast did he call the rest of your family and say, Hey, I think something's going on here. Um, I don't believe at first he thought anything was wrong. Um, I know that there were voice message. Um, I was able to retrieve Yolanda's voice messages. Just that's the closeness we had. I figured out her password, um, retrieved her voicemails or voice, yeah, voicemails. And he, my brother at first was upset thinking that Yolanda was ignoring his calls, um, not realizing that her phone was actually apparently taken away from her because it's the only thing today that was never recovered. Everything else was recovered, including herself. Her phone to this day was, is never, has never been recovered. That's another story. <laughs> I bought that phone for her. It was in my name. It was my bill. It was my account. And, um, that was never recovered. And it was about maybe five years ago, there was activity on the phone. And when I reported that, um, interestingly, the next day it was shut off. And when I called to find out why it was shut off, because I continued to pay that bill for 10 years while she was, you know, during her disappearance, as well as when she was found, I continued to pay that bill. Um, in the hopes that with the new technology that these towers can bing, you know, her the location or pick up whatever more information the law enforcement needed. And when that activity occurred and I contacted the local um, police as well as the, the lead detective, as well as the lead agent with the FBI, um, the next day the phone was shut off. And when I called Sprint to find out the reason it was why it was shut off, their response was the account holder shut it off. And that was not the case because I was the only account holder. So that's still a mystery. That's a part of the mystery in this case too as well. So that's very bizarre. So that entire time you're paying this bill in the hopes that some point, some time a clue will come from it. And, but nobody's using that phone the entire time, except for that one time. Yes. And then that one time you, report it and the next day the phone is suddenly shut shut off yes wow and and did the phone the the phone company i assume is the one you checked with to say hey why did you shut my phone off or yes i um when when the the change that occurred was um one of the other reasons i wanted to leave the on his phone on is because you hear her voice saying her name and um that piece was switched over um, to an older lady speaking. And I, before contacting law enforcement, I contacted Sprint to find out more information about how could that possibly occur. And when they gave me the couple options of either you have to have the physical phone 
or you'd have to have the password to it. That was very alarming. And so let alone the change. So when I called both the lead detective and lead agent um, and informed them, one seemed concerned, the other not too much. The next day it was shut off. That's very, After 10 years. Very strange. The timing is, is very strange. Yes. Um, and it's the only item that has not been recovered. Wow. And I know right from the start that the next morning, there's lots of searchers out there looking for your sister. And her car was found at an Arby's parking lot not far from her work. Um, yes. Who's the person that found the car? A sister of mine. Another sister. And and how devastating was it for her to find that car but not see her, her sister around? Very, very much so. Um, I think more so, too, it was right parked right at close to the road. So it was something that, you know, you couldn't miss um, had you known her vehicle. And um, so it was devastating. And she, at that point, very much was scared that something had terribly happened. We so, just wasn't sure. We weren't sure where, you know, what she wasn't sure, you know, if, if it was that she was abducted, being held against her will, or if she was harmed, you know, she wasn't sure to the, you know, to the extent, but she just knew something wasn't good. Yeah. It just wasn't normal. Yes. Yes. If you, if, do you know if, if there happens to be uh, an Arby's at that Arby's, if there was any kind of surveillance or video system? There was not, unfortunately. Wow. And any witnesses that described seeing anybody driving the car or anything like that? None to my knowledge. And we as the family went into Arby's um, on the 15th of August and asked if anyone saw anything at all. And and the reason, you know, the 15th, um, that's when we, the family, put on the first initial search. Um, and everybody claimed they didn't see nothing. And looking inside the car, around the car, was there anything out of place, anything that didn't seem to fit, uh, that looked didn't look normal there with the car? Um, I believe, if I recall, the doors were locked, and Yolanda never locked her car um, for certain reasons. And so her car being locked was alarming. That was the, you know, that was the only thing, everything inside the car and everything was intact in place, nothing abnormal, but the fact the car was locked was alarming, was a red flag. And, and whoever parked it there, it wasn't like it was trying to be hidden because it was right there out in the open. So you don't think there's any, anybody that was trying to hide it necessarily. No. And I believe that whomever had done that, um, want it to appear as though she left it there as if she just walked off on her own. I know that Yolanda was stopping to pick up milk when she called your brother on, on the way home from work. Was there any evidence that she did get the milk or did she even make it to that store she was intending to go to? She did not make it cause she still had, um, wick checks is what she was using and she, they were not used. Um, and the reason she was going is she told my brother they were getting ready to expire. And that's why she was going to get it, the milk. And the WIC, the, uh, WIC checks were you could use for like baby food, formula, bread, milk, that kind of stuff? Yeah. Yes. And they were not used, so she never got the milk. 
And, and where was that store in relation to uh, the Arby's or to Yolanda's work? Um, kind of in between on the other side of the road. Okay. So she wasn't driving like to another town. It was going to be sort of a quick on the way type of trip. Yeah. Like, yeah, she would just go out to the right, like few doors, you know, just a couple businesses and then, you know, to go home, it's the, you know, the, to the left, so to speak, like from the parking lot of family dollar where she worked. So it was all within like right there, like even walking distance. And did her coworkers see her actually get in her car and leave the, the the dollar store where she worked at? Yes. So they saw her drive out, and at that point there was nothing weird? Well, more so from my understanding, she saw her in her car um, on the phone, um, apparently talking to my brother. And... So she did not, to my knowledge, see her actually pull out of the parking lot. She saw her in the car with the car started, and she was on the phone. But at that point, everything seemed normal. There was no no strange man hanging around the car, any of that kind of stuff. No. Okay. And your family knew that Yolanda wouldn't just run off and leave her kids. So I assume right away that you all feared that something had happened and either I think you mentioned earlier maybe she was hurt or injured and wandered off or somebody had taken her one way or the other you knew something was wrong yes definitely and how quickly did the the police get involved in in searching for her when you went to that did I assume you would call and say hey you know we've got a missing person here did they come right out and start looking and take it seriously or was it a case where they say they're an adult you have to give it 24 hours um, they did not act immediately and they did not take it serious at first. Um, it was believed on their part that she more than likely just took off on her own. She's a single mom, overwhelmed and stressed, and she more than likely just went off on her own was what they believed in the beginning and did not take it serious. Well, so that very early time that, that was crucial, the only people out there really looking for her were, were your family and whoever else else was helping to do this search. Yes. And they um, told my brother that they would go out to Fluvanna Avenue, which is the street that her work and Arby's and quality market is the grocery store she was going to go to. Um, they told my brother that they had gone, that they were going out there to see if they see anything out of the ordinary. Um, that's part of why my sister was really surprised that when she went out there later that evening after the police had gone out there, that the car, Yolanda's car was right there parked in the front. You couldn't miss it. Is it, is it possible? And I don't know if this is something that you've explored or the police have talked about. Is it possible that somebody parked that car there somehow after they looked through that area? Or do you think that it was there the entire time? Is there any way to know that uh, based on what you know? You know, I would not know that. And I would say it's very possible because anything is possible. Um, but I don't know what those chances would have been that somebody would have later parked it there. Yeah. And, and you would think because people are starting to look for it, wonder where they're at, they're going to have their eyes open. So going back would be risky to drop a car off like that. Yeah. Very much so. Yes. Yeah. At, at the time, did Yolanda have any enemies or anyone that, 
your family could think of that might want to hurt her or that she might have reason to be afraid of? Um, yes. And it's, um, actually an individual who's a person of interest. Okay. And without naming them, would you be able to, uh, maybe tell us a little bit about that scenario and, and why you suspected this person? Um, yes. Um, there was, um, past relationship and, um, it wasn't good. It wasn't a healthy relationship. And so, um, it wasn't until a few years after that relationship, closer to the time, um, you know, in between the time of that relationship and Yolanda going missing, um, they had ran into each other again after that incident. So, um, and Yolanda feared this individual, um, for the longest time since that relationship, um, and Apparently, in some information I learned after her disappearance, is that apparently um, they would get together from time to time um, since they kind of met back up and um, and don't really know how much to say because um, <laughs> um, and when she found out that she was pregnant and um, didn't disclose that out of the fear. Um, later in February of 04, um, it was established and determined who the father is, which happens to be that individual. <laughs> and, um, and then what, six months later, she went missing. How closely did police look at that person? Um, very, very much so. And, and to your knowledge, were they able to rule him out? Absolutely not. They are still looking closely at that individual. And and are there any other individuals that, that you know of that are somebody that might be considered suspects or uh, might um, deserve a closer look? There is um, there's actually another person of interest that was named um, who is a police officer that and the the knowledge that I have about that um, with the police officer is they Yolanda was never in a relationship with him, um, but they did talk from time to time, um, not like privately or intimately, but like he would you know pull over in the police car if he saw her walking or out in front of her house or you know at the store or wherever, and they would talk. Um, to my knowledge, um, I don't believe there was any sort of relationship that they had. Um, but from my understanding, he's a person of interest because in the very beginning, early stages of the investigation, um, he did not come forward to say, Hey, I've talked to her from time to time. And in my opinion, I don't feel like everybody in that town's probably talked to her from time to time. So, I mean, I don't know why that was alarming to the police that, you know, why he didn't come forward to say, Hey, you know, I've, I've stopped and talked to her. Um, but again, there was nothing in between, you know, between Yolanda and that officer that would have been alarming. Now that police officer, I think I know you're talking about did have some other issues that, 
that came to light. Uh, what kind of issues were those? Yes, those were um, other issues. Um, and I, I say the allegations, because I don't think that it was ever proven or what might have you, but I guess some other females came forward after Yolanda's disappearance to, um, and claim that he had either, you know, stalked them or harassed them. Um, but it's from my understanding and knowledge, I don't believe anything really came of that when there was charges put on him for that. I think it was like an Alfred plea. Okay. So it wasn't, you know, he wasn't actually found guilty of it. So, so there, there have been people that were looked at and continued to be looked at in the case. It's not like it's just a, a blank slate of, of suspects. There are people that they, that they're looking into. Yes. And, and so weeks go by with no sign of Yolanda, and then a month later, in September two thousand four, her purse, her wallet, and keys, they're pulled from a, a storm drain. How did that yes. happen? Uh, that they were found and. Do you, do police think that they they got washed into the storm drain uh, by rain, or were they thrown down there to hide them? How, how did that come about? Um, there were the gentleman um, by passerby going. I don't know where he was going home or what might have you, and he happened to see them. Um, and when he saw them, he it you know connect with Yolanda's disappearance. He picked them up, went into the wallet, pulled out Yolanda's driver's license and call the police. Um, the police do believe that it was thrown down into the storm drain. So they, that, I mean, that seems like a, a, a perfect place to get rid of something like that. You know, if you're looking to discard something real quick and hide it, that seems like a, a, a logical spot. Um, yeah. and, and did, it, and did the water somehow raise it, raise them up out of the, uh, out of the storm drain or he, he could just see down in there clearly that, they were at the bottom of the drain down there. Yeah, no, they were washed up. It was, um, um, I recall there was lots of storms during that time. Lots of heavy rain. Uh, so the water had essentially raised everything up out it, of the drains. Yes, yes. And I'm sure the individual responsible did not expect that. <laughs> and But no sign of that phone, though. Did they, they do any extensive searching of, of those uh, drains in that area looking maybe for the phone too? Yes, they did. No, no other signs of anything else. No. And because it was turned off the night, the very night that she was, um, she went missing, they weren't able to ping it off of anything. It did that stuff being found give you hope or did it make you less hopeful that Yolanda would be found alive? It scared me more. <laughs> it, it definitely um, made me lean towards that she was hurt and perhaps maybe not with us. But of course, I did not want to believe that. But yeah, it definitely made me feel like someone's hurt her and they're, they've disregarded her belonging so that she you know, can't be found. So those things being found in the storm drain didn't really help the investigation. Um, it didn't lead to any direct answers. And it wasn't until two years later when your sister's remains were found by hunters. How devastating was it to get the news that Yolanda was gone? Very extremely. Um, we got the call 
that remains were found. And there's another individual. There's actually a couple now, I think a few. Um, but at the time, there was another individual. They thought possibly, it could possibly be um, Lori, the, another young girl that went missing at the time. Or not at the time, but in 97. And so um, I, living in North Carolina, I drove up to Jamestown because I, I wanted to be with my family before they announced who it was because I was really... Um, we were all, the family was really concerned about it being Yolanda because of her car being found, her belongings being found, the whole, you know, scenario. Um, and so when the lead detective and lead agent with the FBI came up to my sister's house that we were at, um, and told us it was, it was devastating. It's not at all, of course, what we want to hear. There was a part that it was... I don't want to say like closure, but closure, the not wondering part. But at the same time, it was devastating because there was still the inkling hope of, you know, she's out there. Someone's maybe holding her against her will. And that's, that the, was- that's the hope of, you know, we don't have a body, so there's still a possibility. But when they come to you and tell you that, that sort of ends that. And now it's yeah. a whole new chapter that you have to deal with. Yeah. And, and I don't even know, I, I, I try and when I talk to people like yourselves, I, I talk to people who have missing loved ones that they've been looking for for decades. And then other people that, ha- you know, they have a body and sometimes uh, I don't know how to balance what, what could be worse. I mean, always wondering the rest of your life where someone is or knowing that they, they're dead and having a body. I, I don't see either one being easy. I don't know how, how it was for you to go from wondering where she was all that time to now finding, finding out she's dead. Yeah. And it was, I mean, I have friends that have missing loved ones and I, for, in my opinion, as a, you know, survivor to a murdered victim, I, um, the having the missing still is, crucial it, it's it's devastating because of the not knowing and, and that's the worst feeling that anyone can possibly feel is the not knowing um because there can be so many dis- different scenarios that can run through one's mind as to you know their whereabouts or what happened whereas when you know the body's recovered at least that answers all those questions if that makes sense you know you don't have to wonder anymore and come up with all these different scenarios. Cause I know I've come up with a lot of different scenarios during her disappearance. And so some of that allows you to, to move on past that chapter of, okay, she's not missing. We're not wondering what's happening to her, where she's at. Now you're just focused on moving forward and saying, okay, who did this to her? That's yeah. Cause now, now we have that piece of the not knowing and you know, we, we have our, strong feelings we the family pretty much we all agree on who we believe is responsible um we believe we you know know the motive um i actually spoke with one of the former da's district attorneys um you know on this case um they're on the third one since her disappearance um i spoke to one of them back in 2014 um we did a 10-year remembrance um for yolanda and when I got back home, I called the district attorney's office to pretty much say, you know what, we need answers. We need something. 
because it's been 10 years and nothing's happening and we need to know something. And so when I asked him if I shared our theory with him, if he can give me any idea if we're even close, if we're, you know, far-fetched, if, you know, we're whatever, if he can give us anything. Um, when I shared our theory, the family's theory, um, you know, what, who could be responsible, the motive behind it, um, he pretty much said we were right on. Wow. So that sort of you know validates, that, we were right. that validates what you were thinking, basically. Yes, yes. And um, he did also agree and say that um, the early stages of her disappearance, that um, there were um, some things not handled properly um, in her case. Now, nothing that is detriment to the case, but just some things that should have been handled differently um, and within the police department. And so um, with that, because one of our biggest concerns until this day is um, the police officer who is considered a person of interest, um, his immediate supervisor, to my understanding, is the lead detective in Yolanda's case. And to avoid conflict of interest of them investigating one of their own, they brought in the FBI, which gave my family a tremendous relief because we're like, okay, another set of eyes. We got somebody, you know, else coming in, a whole new different agency. Well, it turned out the lead agent who was investigating the officer is the lead detective's brother. And so we felt like there was no avoiding conflict of interest there. And, and there's, they couldn't ask the, uh, a different agent be assigned the case that's that's very bizarre no we have asked um we have requested that um i personally was actually um threatened by um one of them i won't necessarily say which one but one of them that if we the family had either one of them removed from the case that they'll make sure that the case is closed and that was at six months of her disappearance. And I was shocked and devastated. Um, that individual later apologized, you know, and said he shouldn't have said that. But wow, that's very, um, very disturbing to hear as a family member of a, of a missing or murdered person that, hey, if you do this, I'm going to shut your case down. I mean, that's yes. that's ludicrous. And that's what I asked the first DA because I called the district attorney's office, even though it was a disappearance and they didn't necessarily have, you know, a case in the district attorney's office. Um, I called and said, you know, I don't know what to do. I'm shocked. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm desperate and seeking where, you know, looking for my sis sister and for him to say that I just, you know, I'm not a family member is not who you want to say that to. Yeah, and it boggles my hard. mind. It boggles my mind when I hear family members say that law enforcement has gotten a, uh, I don't know how else to say it, a bug up their ass about, about something yeah. to the point they threaten the family with, hey, I'm not going to investigate the case or we're not going to let you know what's going on or anything like that. Yes. Well, and I will tell you, since, um, since Yolanda's remains were found, I have reached out to other 
um, I've reached out to, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Vidoc Society. They're out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Absolutely. I've reached out to them um, to see if they can step in. And I was well aware of what the requirements were. I, you know, I did my homework. And um, Yolanda met those requirements. And when I contacted the police department to say, hey, you know, I've reached out to them. They're willing to assist. It's up to y'all now. Can you reach out to them to get their assistance? It was turned down because the FBI are involved. And they won't compromise their investigation. Now, the concern that I had was their investigation part was only to investigate the police officer. It wasn't to investigate Yolanda's case per se. They were to investigate his part. So that was concerning. So that was a roadblock. And then I've reached out to the New York State Attorney General's office to say, hey, you know, the family's concerned. There's conflict of interest. We have, you know, the lead detective and the lead agent, their brothers, they're investigating this. Can we get a set, you know, new set of eyes? And their response was they send a letter to the district attorney's office. And I explained to them that I wanted out of that jurisdiction, perhaps because of conflict. And they send a letter to the district attorney's office, copying me saying, this is a case in your jurisdiction. You need to respond. And they never did respond to me. And then I've also reached out to the FBI headquarters to address this concern. And there was no response there. So all these like dead ends and, and I don't, I, I'm, it it concerns me that um, the state police, I've contacted them after Yolanda's um, person keys were found to find out you know, their involvement, are, are you, are y'all stepping in now? Are y'all stepping in, um, to investigate? And their response was no, we were actually asked to not step in. We offered to assist, but we were told not to. Um, so, so frustrating to hear, you hear that stuff because we all want to support law enforcement and we all yeah. encourage them to do a good job and, and, and help protect people and uh, uh, provide families like yourself some kind of peace of mind. And then to find out that this kind of stuff goes on, which I hear more frequently than I ever thought I would. Uh, it's very, very frightening. It is. It's, it's, and, you know, and I will tell you with what I do in my work now, I do have great respect for law enforcement. I do. Um, I think it's just there was there's a bad apple in that bunch <laughs> in Yolanda's case, and should have never been, you know, involved in the investigation. He, you know, yeah, there's one bad apple, and uh, and truthfully, the district attorney, the one of the former ones in Yolanda's case, agreed and said there is a bad apple, and and it really stinks. <laughs> Uh, and it, well, I'm glad to see that the the case is getting attention. I know there's some new news stories out there uh, about Yolanda's case uh, um, that are airing, and then you know podcasts like this, different things that are, you're doing to get the word out there. Maybe people start hearing this, and and that turns up a little bit of pressure on them to do the right thing. Now, I, I have read, and, and maybe you can clear this up for me. Um, do you know if there was DNA evidence found possibly from the killer? Um, on her remains? Uh, to my knowledge, no. Um, I don't think they were able to pull any DNA at all from 
either her, you know, even herself or anybody. Okay. Okay. Um, and based on everything you've learned over the last 15 years and everything, you know, um, you think that in your mind and in your family's mind, you've all come to a consensus about who did this and what the, what the scenario or the, the motive is. Yes. And how frustrating is that to really feel, Hey, I think this is what happened. I can't prove it, but the police maybe could, and they're not really doing everything we think they should be doing. Do you feel like you're just sort of stuck and, and not able to go anywhere at this point? Um, I, I don't necessarily want to say stuck because doing, um, you know, getting her story out there and bring awareness to her story. Um, I feel like, you know, if law enforcement's not going to move forward or do anything, we will. <laughs> um, so I don't, I don't necessarily say stuck, but it is very, very frustrating that we like piece this together and the individual is just going on with life. Like nothing's ever happened. So that's the frustrating part of it is that, that, you know, we, we are to a degree can say, you know, still suffering and um, the individual is kind of like no care in the world. <laughs> Just going on about his daily life. Yeah. Like this, you know, and, and that's part of, for me personally, getting her story out there, having people, you know, hear what's happened, um, knowing who the police are looking into. Um, I just, I, I hope that that puts pressure on the individual. And for me personally, um, I would want more than anything for this individual to just come forward, like stop the, you know, us sort of kind of chasing after you know, the clues, the answers, so to speak, but just come forward. Just, you know, admit what's happened. It's been 15 years. We've all suffered long enough just to come forward. So hopefully with Yolanda's story, you know, reminding her killer that she's not forgotten. The family's going to continue doing what we're going to do every day, every year. I mean, it's not just this time of the year that we're doing something. It's every opportunity that we get, we're doing something. So, but for that, for her killer to be aware that we're, we haven't laid this to rest and we don't plan to, we have no intentions to until there is some justice in her case, you know, on this case. Well, hopefully he's looking over his shoulder and that justice catches up with whoever did this to, to your sister. Uh, and, and, should if somebody out there listening has information, who should they contact? Should they contact the FBI directly? Um, they can contact. I would suggest the um, the FBI. Well, first, I would say because of where her remains were found, the state police are now involved because of where her remains were found. So there is no, we don't need your assistance. So I would suggest the state police first. New York State Police out of Gary, New York. Um, is the first, and then I would do, you know, contact the FBI, um, as well as Jamestown police and any family member. We are all pretty much on Facebook. It's fairly easy to contact us. So any of us, 
as well in a you know private message. Um, every any information, any tips, anything we receive will be kept anonymous. We will not you know share where the information was received, but we will forward it on. Oh, that's perfect. And do you do you have or are you thinking about setting up a um, Facebook page or group for Yolanda? There is one. There's been it's been established for several years now. Um, it's um, justice for Yolanda Bendix. Okay, and and hopefully listeners, if they want to learn more about the case or or somehow have some information, hopefully they'll they'll go visit that. And and one thing before we wrap up here, I didn't want to forget um, Yolanda's four children. They too, like the rest of your family, are victims here as well, and they're robbed of a lifetime with their mother. Uh, and some of them are very young at the time and, and probably unfortunately won't even be able to, to remember a time with, with her. Um, but how are they doing and what happened with them after, after she was murdered? Um, sadly, because there is different relationships Shalanda was in and had the children with the different dads, um, they were all separated. Um, so that was definitely a detriment to them. Um, and, you know, as growing older and today, um, they still struggle with, you know, not having mom um, and the fact of, you know, what happened to mom. Um, but as a family, we just, we always try to, you know, share the stories with them of mom and the good stuff and, you know, to pictures, whatever we can do to, you know, remind them that, you know, this has happened. There's evil in the world. But at the same time, there is love and, you know, we will do, and, and they know that anything they need, um, all four of them definitely know that they can come to me, like whatever they, they can go to any of the family member, but anything they need, I will provide to them. Um, so, um, but they do, they, you know, they do struggle with it. Um, truthfully, her youngest is aware now. Um, I think it was about two years ago that she had discovered that her father is a person of interest. Um, I think she's got the, um, I don't want to say the worst of it, but the worst of it. Um, she struggles hard with that. Well, that's gotta be a, a burden for a young kid to have to deal with. Yes. Yes, definitely. Um, our family, we, um, never, you know, spoke of even the person of interest. Um, around her girls. Um, some of them learned it on their own, um, younger, you know, in their younger years. Um, but the youngest um, just learned two years ago. So it's really new for her. Wow. Uh, well, there's no happy ending here. There's no bringing Yolanda back, but hopefully somehow, some way you get justice, you get answers, there's an arrest. And if so, I, I'd love to have you back on for a follow-up uh, discussion and, and, and we could talk a little bit more about what happened and, and how things unfolded. Yes, absolutely. I would, I would love to do that. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on to talk about Yolanda's case and, um, you know, again, just hoping for the best for your family and, and that you get through this and get some answers at some point. Thank you. And thank you for what you're doing. I certainly appreciate it. As I'm sure a lot of the families of, you know, the survivors are do appreciate it. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. If you enjoyed this episode, please introduce a friend of the podcast and invite them to listen. As we wrap up this episode, 
I'd like to invite you to listen to a preview of a true crime podcast that I've started listening to, and I think you'll really enjoy. It's called The True Crime Files, and it covers cases featured on the awesome true crime blog at thetruecrimefiles.com. So be sure to check it out. And before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody. Hi, I'm Christine, and I'd like to introduce you to the True Crime Files podcast, a bi-weekly podcast that focuses on mysterious disappearances and unsolved murders. Every two weeks, we'll be releasing an episode that'll help you get to know a case really well without having to invest a lot of your time. Derived from the articles upon the True Crime Files website, you'll find that our show covers a diversity of victims and perspectives. You'll probably also notice that our episodes are narrated by Scott Fuller from the Frozen Truth and Status Pending podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to the True Crime Files today so that you never miss an episode. Thanks so much for listening, being a part of our true crime community, and helping to shine a light on cases that might otherwise be overlooked or underreported.